0: this is iaq radio indoor air quality radio the voice of the indoor air quality industry with your host radio joe hughes and the z-man cliff zlotnick and now radio joe hughes
1: good day and welcome to iaq radio plus episode 692 this week we welcome john lapater of iaq solutions in orlando florida we're gonna talk. It's always great to get a little field report from John and, and go over, you know, what's going on out in the field, but he's also very involved with industry associations and developing industry standards. So we'll be talking about that as well. But before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show. Don't forget after the show, afterthoughts. IAQRadio.com, sponsored by First On Site. IAQ Radio Marquee sponsor is first on site at First on site.com, IAQ Radio Association sponsors are ACGIH, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at ACGIH.org, AIHA, the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org, IICRC, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at IICRC.org. The Restoration Industry Association, RIA, at restorationindustry.org. The Environmental Information Association, EIA, at eia-usa.org. IAQ Radio Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories at aemlinc.com. Particles Plus at particlesplus.com. TSI Inc at tsi.com. Tramex Meters at TramexMeters.com and Healthy Indoors Magazine at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can
0: win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ radio trivia question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to C. Zlotnick at com, Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now here's the Z Man.
1: All right. No Z Man today. He's out at the IICRC meetings in Vegas. So I'm going to handle the trivia question and, um, I don't know if I'll get it right or not, but I'll do my best, Cliff. Um, Who was the first chair of the IICRC S520 committee when it was an ANSI-approved standard? All right, let's move on. We've got John Lapotera today. He's a building envelope and indoor environmental consultant providing IAQ consultation for commercial and residential properties. He's got a bunch of certifications. He's a past IAQA president, and he served on several industry association committees and boards, both international and national. John, welcome back. Always great to see you in the war room. Hey, always good to be here. <laughs> All right, buddy, Thanks for having bro. me. I was looking back through the old shows. I think I've had you on here like 10 times, John. <laughs> Usually it's with a group of people or with your lovely wife, Lydia, but we always appreciate getting your perspective from the field. Uh, But also you you work a lot with industry associations. And, um, you know, right now, I know you've been working hard on a couple of standards, at least one. Uh, Let's first get the background on S520. Talked about that in the trivia question. Where are we with the S520 right now? There's a new revision going on, I guess. Um,
0: How's that coming along? Yeah, they just put it out for public review. Um, the public review is closed, and the S-520 consensus body is now reviewing the, the comments and deciding how they're going to act upon those comments. And depending on the amount of comments and the level to which they, uh, they apply the comments to the standard, they may have to go back for a second public review. Uh, but we won't know for a little while yet on exactly what's going to come of the the comment period. Okay. And what were your thoughts
1: on the change? Were there major changes? Was it kind of a, you know, an update, uh,
0: like, you know, spring cleaning kind of thing where we go
1: through and change a few things?
0: I would have to say it's well beyond spring cleaning and a few updates. I think they expanded in in certain areas. I think they expanded in the condition two area. Um, I don't think it's going to change much. In in my opinion, the removal of mold is is simple. Um, containment to control the 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 dust up from the removal of mold all pretty pretty basic. Um, the harder part of mold remediation is finding the cause and origin of the moisture that supported the mold growth. The removal we get caught up in the weeds of complicating the removal, and I've I've just never thought it was that complicated.
1: Well, when you say they're expanding the condition too, that's kind of the. You know, that's the area where there's always some gray, uh, where people were worried that maybe mold spores got from the source into other parts of the building, maybe into the mechanical system, et cetera. Um, how are they just expanding on how they look at it? Or are they giving more detail on how to differentiate between something that's contaminated and not contaminated?
0: Uh, a little bit of both, but I think their primary focus was on making sure that you understand that a condition 2 can't exist without an identified condition 3 and that condition 2 specifically originated from a uh, condition 3 so if you take a surface sample for example in my living room and you find mold that doesn't mean that's a condition 2 that's a condition 1 of my living room but if there were a condition 3 in the living room and you took a surface sample then there's some likelihood that it came from the condition 3 but the the hardest part about condition 2 for anybody to to get a hold of is that it's all opinion it's 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 literally 100% my opinion because it can't be supported in any way you can't take a a surface sample to the genus and a surface sample on the wall to the genus and play connect the dots because there's too many species in each genus of mold you you haven't narrowed it down you, you haven't conclusively determine that the mold on the floor is the mold from the wall.
1: What if you did a PCR test on it?
0: It would still be very difficult. You still couldn't conclusively determine the extent of condition two. And and right now, nobody's doing PCR testing for condition two. Typically what they do is they see mold on the wall, and then they take air samples in every other part of the house, and they might take a surface sample. Um, In most cases, it's Aspen, so they've got Aspen on the wall, and they've got Aspen in every room in the house, and therefore the Aspen in every room in the house originated from the wall, and everything is cross-contaminated, and everything, including the air conditioning, needs to be clean. But that's not very scientific.
1: Well, that kind of leads us into the new standard that I understand IICRC is working on, it. I haven't followed it as closely as I guess I I could have, but there's an S530. Can you tell people a little bit about what that standard is designed to do?
0: Yeah, I'm actually uh, the vice chair of that committee, and that's basically the mold assessment standard. Um, We've worked quite a bit on it. Uh, It's going to replace... I guess the uh, ASTM D7338, which is the assessment of mold, that would be the prevailing standard now. Um, The IICRC decided to write their own standard. Uh, I think the benefit to the IICRC writing the standard is that they have a better delivery system than ASTM. So ASTM has the standard. It's been out for quite a while. It doesn't get broadly taught, and it's not very well introduced. Uh, to the restoration field or the IEP field. So when the IICRC finishes the standard, they're going to start training it so people would become more aware of what a mold assessment is, which is is not the collection of air samples. So our focus on our committee is cause and origin and extent of the damage. So we're going to, just like the ASTM, require that you determine the cause and origin. And with the use of a floor plan, determine the extent of the damage, there's nowhere in the S-520 that it says to remove two feet beyond anything. Um, That was perpetrated by the, uh, the, um, the guidance document, and now everybody just removes a wall and keeps going for two feet. Well, an IEP needs to determine what needs to be removed. We've been doing that for years. So it's not that it can't be done. There was originally some pushback on the committee from some people that said uh, that there may be mold assessors that lack the ability to determine the cause and origin of the moisture supporting mold. I'm like, well, damn, that's kind of like being a barber, but not wanting to learn how to cut hair. <laughs> <laughs> that's your primary focus. Showing up on the job site for a mold inspection and declaring that there's mold is not the reason you were hired. They called you because they have mold they called you because they want you to tell them why they have mold and how to keep it from coming back. And that's what the S530 will be focusing on.
1: I. It's very interesting um, that IICRC is writing this standard. I don't think they've too often, if at all, gotten into, the consulting side of things. Essentially, I look at it as you have consultants, you have contractors. Some people call them IEPs. Some people call them different things. But um, And a lot of that in the past was done by people from industrial hygiene world, industrial hygienists, uh, certified industrial hygienists, AIHA folks, did a lot of the consulting when it was necessary. And the IICRC always was, I felt, Like they represented more of the restoration side of things and that those contractors. And for a long time, there was an argument about whether or not there should even be IEPs mentioned in a mold remediation standard. And that was kind of made up back years ago. Uh, They made up the term indoor environmental professional, they made up a uh, definition of what an IEP is. Um, I guess I'm a little, I'm wondering. Why IICRC, you, you kind of told me that, you know, that no one's really following the ASTM and IICRC is also out there training a lot of the remediation guys, but do they have the expertise to train people on the consulting side, the IEPs? Because let's face it, that's, I'm sure that's the next step. We're going to have a uh, a class that will be a certification class and um, people will be certified to be IEPs. Are they
0: the right group to be doing that? Um, I, I think um, possibly they will be. Uh, if the standard is written well enough, then I don't see why they shouldn't. Uh, in, in, in recent years, the IICRC has really blown up in creating a, a positive work environment for the IEP. Uh, whether it's fire or mold or crime scenes, Um, they are really establishing a a good work environment for the IEP. Uh, They're really, when I started in this business in the 90s, there was no such thing as an IEP. We wrote our own scopes of work. We provided our own containment. We did our own mold remediation. But let's face it, today, if you go into a typical mold remediation, that scope of work will be so exaggerated by the mold remediator they are really um, exaggerating the loss to the extent that insurance carriers are leaving the state of Florida. The state of Florida and other states have decided to create a licensing law that separates the assessment of the mold from the mold remediator. Granted, that didn't work at all. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that was the intent. The intent was to stop the mold remediators from exaggerating the loss. So here here comes the development of, like you refer to, the IEP right-to-work law, the mold licensing.
1: Or the it, IEP and, Full Employment Act, whatever way you want to look at there
0: it. There you go. And so now you, you have all of these IEPs that show up uh, and provide a mold assessment. And the mold assessment usually says nothing more than uh, Eureka. The lab says there's mold. Remove it two feet beyond. Consult a licensed mold remediator. Not an assessment. So any training that you could provide from just about anyone that follows the standard that we're writing—that says find the the cause and origin and define the extent of the damage using a floor plan—if you teach those two things and keep the sampling pump in your truck, then yeah, I think I think the IICRC can can teach that.
1: Now, but doesn't this really? It seems to me like it's something that needs to be addressed in, in the state laws where there are state laws, because if they're able to go ahead in, it seems like they're requiring a third party to some degree. You don't have to have one on every project in Florida, but they're not requiring that that third party do a cause and origin. Is that accurate? I'm not that familiar with Florida law. I know in D.C. you're required to do a cause and origin.
0: Yeah, in Florida, there's there are no standards whatsoever. Um, You can do whatever you want, defined by whoever wants to define it. Um, There are many different industry organizations that have their own methods. You know, there are people that are fogging, using ozone. Um, it's, It's the Wild West down here, so there's no requirement at all. What we lobbied the state in the beginning is to adopt the prevailing industry standard of practice, which would have been the S520 and the ASTM uh seventy three thirty eight uh, they opted not to do that. they said, let them decide on their own, so without a minimum standard of practice, there is no standard of practice. so these guys can show up, charge whatever they want for the collection of a few samples, call it a mold assessment, and move on down the road. It's why, after a hurricanes uh, after a hurricane, these guys show up as licensed i e p s and they go into properties that haven't been stabilized and don't have power. And they're collecting thousands of air samples, calling it a mold assessment on a a property that's open to the elements and sending an invoice to the insurance companies.
1: Well, that's, and that's a Florida issue. And I think it happens a lot in um, places like Texas as well, when there's, you know, disasters and people come in and they take advantage of the situation. Um, Another topic Okay, so you're going to focus on, and I've got a little outline here. Of course, you always do the scope, the purpose, and the application, the definitions, the principles of assessment. So identifying the origin and the cause, establishing the extent of the mold, documenting all that, writing a protocol. Is that going to be a requirement that they write a protocol for the remediation? Yes. Okay. And what is that protocol going to be? Follow the S-520, essentially.
0: Pretty much, yes. We're trying to tie it in as closely as we can to the same language as uh, the S-520. So we're going to try and marry them together so they work um, hand and foot. All right. So
1: now we've gotten to the point where we're doing the remediation, and somebody's going to verify that remediation has been completed. I think one of the most controversial things you're going to attempt to do here, if I'm not mistaken... Is develop some type of post remediation verification criteria. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, we're keeping it simple. Um, not going to put anything in there that's going to require you to to sample heavy. Uh, keep it clean. Make sure that the building materials were removed that you uh, identified as being needing to be removed. Make sure that the condition three areas are gone. Make sure that the moisture source has been corrected and make sure it's clean and dust-free using a white or black cloth. That's it.
1: Okay. Okay. And that, have you run into a lot of uh, pushback on that? No. Okay. No,
0: nobody in the committee feels any differently about what's required for post-remediation verification. I think it's unfortunate for the, the restoration contractors that for years they get beat up because of a spore count. Um uh, there's an industry out there that has zero tolerance molds. I, I don't know where any of this craziness comes from, but if it's removed, then the intent is for the contained work environment to have no negative impact on the uncontained areas when the containment is removed and the areas reach equilibrium. That's what it's saying in our post remediation verification section. It's that simple. No negative impact when the containment is removed.
1: we or- I guess who is on the, I'm not looking for names, but I'm looking for who they represent. You know, do you have people that represent building owners and building managers and maybe government and uh, remediation contractors and maybe the AIHA or, you know, the industrial hygiene people or something like that? Do you have a good cross-section of people from around the industry?
0: So the um, ANSI requires us to have three different groups. Producers, users, and those that have general interest. So a producer would be an IEP, a user would be a remediation contractor, and general interest would be property owners uh, and and that type of of individual. So we do have people with postgraduate degrees. We have CIHs. um, We have restoration contractors, IEPs like myself. So we're required to have a good balance of all three. So it's going to be a good balance. And how long do you expect this to take, John? Hmm. Standards. Um, I've been on standard writing committees that have taken the better part of 10 years, and I've been on some that have taken just a few years. Um, I I would expect three years. We're making some pretty good headway now. Uh, So I'd say in a couple of years, this will be out.
1: Okay. And what about – determining if HVAC systems have been impacted. How are you handling that?
0: Well, the current ASTM standard says that you got to open it up and look, um, and you've got to inspect the ducts. So we're going to do the same thing and reference the NADCA guidelines. Um, So we're wanting to work directly with with NADCA on that. Um, But, yeah, I think you should open the air handler and inspect it. And is that –
1: A subpart of the standard, I mean, I know that like in the fire standard, that's kind of a separate little standard, at least for um, NADCA wrote kind of a separate little standard for that. Is that going to be included or is that going to be a separate standard itself?
0: It's going to be included. We're not going to make it that complicated. We'll reference the NADCA document, but opening the access panels to an air handler or the access panel to a plenum or a duct or removing a supply register to inspect the duct there's nothing to that, and there is there is nobody that I'm aware of in the state of Florida that doesn't want the mold assessor to inspect the mechanical equipment for mold. The, the HVAC contractors do not want to do it. Um, their organization has completely stated that they want to defer to the licensed mold assessors, so open the mechanical equipment up and, and take a look at it. It's it's really not overly complicated. And it,
1: I, I've heard different opinions on whether someone who is not a mechanical contractor, not licensed, can do what you're describing. Are they allowed to go into duct work? Are they allowed to pull the panel off of an of air handling unit? Um, are, are they allowed to do that type of inspection without understanding mechanical systems necessarily?
0: So in the state of Florida, in every county that I've ever inspected in, um, the answer is yes, you can. It's It falls within the scope of your work as a, a mold inspector. It states in the current prevailing industry uh, standard, the ASTM, uh, to look inside the mechanical equipment. So it's supported by our minimum standard of practice uh, to look inside the air uh, handler and the ductwork. So we've had no problem whatsoever because the mechanical contractors, they sure as hell don't want to be responsible for it. All right. Uh another
1: topic that becomes kind of uh and, and I've had I got a text question on it now, but I've also had a couple of emails from uh one of our audience members that's very sensitive um to mold and uh also to a lot of environmental conditions. He's even he's got severe asthma. Um you and I talked about CO two being elevated and that you find that some of your customers with COPD had additional issues when the co2 i think was elevated which is a little interesting um whether it's the co2 itself or the uh the fact that the co2 indicates there's not enough ventilation i'm not sure which it is he's even said that uh, temperature and relative humidity will aggravate his asthma um Are you getting input from people who are part of the, um, I see the text here is chronic inflammatory response syndrome type people, the very mold sensitive type people. What kind of input are you getting from that group?
0: So I I want to be very clearly because people get upset all the time when we talk about mold and the minimum standard of practice in my house, where if I've got a small mold problem, I clean it up and it can be visually cleared. And to be very clear, I'm not saying that that's a health issue. And when it comes to people with Sears, that's when you elevate it. You have to know your client. The client interview has to take part and and be a a big uh, criteria for setting clearance. So when I say the minimum standard of practice is contain and clean and make it as clean as the rest of the house, that's perfectly fine. But if you have somebody sensitive, then you have to go above and beyond. You're going to do a little bit more. Um, so it, we definitely have input from those people, and we definitely understand that we're going to need to raise the clearance criteria based on the client. So I want everybody to, to understand minimum standard of practice is not something that we're going to hold people to if they're sensitive. We're we're going to go above and beyond for those people,
1: definitely. Will there be a section on that?
0: No. Okay.
1: No. So this is just the minimum practice. Sure. Um will you even mention in there that it may not be uh may not be appropriate, let's say, for those with um uh, it's it's th- gonna be who are sensitive.
0: Yeah, it's gonna be addressed that during the client interview you have to set the certain uh criteria that you have to understand your client. So it's it'll be addressed, but it's not gonna be a separate section and we're not gonna go into um, just like the S-520 doesn't go into how to remediate for somebody that's worried about nanoparticles uh, versus minimum standard for mold remo- removal. The same thing for the post-remediation verification. This is the minimum standard you need to get a remediator off the rock in a typical mold remediation um, environment. But if you have somebody that needs more, then absolutely.
1: All right. Let me, uh, let me get to another part of one of these text questions. And that was, uh, what about particle counts, John? I know you're a huge proponent of particle counting to get an idea of what the, you know, where particles are within the indoor environment, where they're worse than, uh, the, you know, where they're elevated, let's say, uh, what they're like compared to the outdoors, what they're like compared from room to room. Um, are you including anything on particle counting or Are hoping to include anything on particle counting within the standard
0: we're actually on that right now we're we're hung up a little bit on how to put that in there um you know i I think particle counting is one of the most important things for an iep um if you're taking an air sample for mold spores you're really missing a lot um i saw a flash that somebody was making a a comment that people are suffering in schools because of minimum standards I don't think it's that simple. Um, when you measure airborne particulates, you need to measure every room of a house or every room in the school and find out if the if the area is producing something or if it's accumulating something. You'd be surprised how many times a, a, a house or a school or a, an office building is simply accumulating. Housekeeping isn't as good as we think it is. Housekeeping handles the surfaces that we see but we can disturb the areas that we don't see simply by rolling around in a chair or coming in and out of a classroom. So for me, particle counts are very, very critical. Particle counts with the air conditioning off. And then again with the air conditioning on, so we can see how well um, the the indoor environment is performing. But more importantly than particles uh, is the uh, carbon dioxide. We find that more schools and office buildings and especially homes now are suffering from high carbon dioxide, and it's not particles that is a problem for people that have asthma or COPD. Interesting.
1: John, um, I've got one more I think we can get to before the break, and then we'll we'll keep going through these. But um, one of our audience asked, how do you find qualified IEPs in your state to consult and assess? What a great question. Um, You know, other than referring them to you and IAQ solutions, <laughs> where do you go to look? Where do you find these people? I mean, not everybody listens to IAQ radio. Obviously, I got like 25 people on here live. You know, we'll get three, four download three, four hundred downloads, but uh, you know, where do you go to find these IEPs?
0: Uh, there are there are three places that we would recommend you go: AIHA, IAQA, and A C A C. Um, and go to their Find a Pro, enter the, uh, the uh, zip code, and find somebody. But it's all in the interview. Um, we tell our clients and any consumer, be very specific on what you're asking for. And, and if you want your indoor environment assessed, then ask for your entire indoor environment to be assessed don't ask for it to be sampled to death because typically those that sample the most have the least ability to interpret the samples. (laughs) Those that don't need the samples will do the best at assessing. So if you can measure the indoor environment, VOCs, formaldehyde, carbon dioxide, uh, airborne particles, temperature and humidity, you do that with the AC on and off, you're going to learn a whole hell of a lot about that house you're going to learn whether or not you've got air infiltration from a crawl space or an attic because the particulates are going to go up when the AC is running. So you'll you'll know quite a bit. You'll know that the carbon dioxide is high and that uh, the house is sealed very, very tightly, for example, because the the formaldehyde, VOCs, and carbon dioxide, they just get equalized when you run the AC. Everything just gets mixed up nicely, but uh, the carbon dioxide keeps going up. So now you've got a beautifully weatherized, otherwise healthy home. No elevations in particular, but your carbon dioxide's above two thousand. You so know, you don't ask the right questions.
1: You, you're you're going right up my alley here. I mean, I've for years I would not teach just mold inspection. I just I felt that was wrong, and because I feel like if you're doing if you're going into someone's indoor environment and just looking for mold, you're going to find mold if all you have is a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. Wayne Baker once said that on the show. I'll never forget it. and I always felt people should learn how to do indoor environmental quality investigations, not just mold inspections. but i've kind of been I guess I've been proven wrong over the years because the states feel like that's the most important thing, and you know uh people are doing a lot of mold related stuff, and a lot of the mold people do also check other issues. As IICRC, I I remember back when I I was on their board for three years, some of the toughest years of my life, to be honest with you. Uh, (laughs) And at that time, they were considering an indoor environmental quality assessment standard as opposed to just a mold standard. Has that been discussed at all? I mean, ASTM's got a good indoor air quality standard, but nobody uses it.
0: Yeah, it's nobody's really talking about it. And the only reason that we're really... Getting upon the uh, the mold aspect is because, one, it's covered by insurance, and two, people think it's killing them. And in, in my experience, it's less of a mold issue and more of an environmental issue. Uh, people hate to hear it, but it could be housekeeping. It could be the, the building itself, but it could be a myriad of other things. People seal themselves in houses today, and it's just not healthy. So, A guy taught me in early 2000s, some old gray-haired guy up in Pensacola, (laughs) taught me to look at every part of the house. And uh, I I appreciate that. That was you, by the way, Joe. (laughs) And uh, I haven't stopped. We've been measuring houses and finding out that people believe that they have a mold issue. They believe the schools are all mold issues. But in in most cases, it's going to be a combination of housekeeping and ventilation. And I don't want to even get started on the minimum ventilation rate because I think that's a crock in itself. The ventilation rate needs to be based on the occupants and the occupant activity. Okay, i got to
1: go to halftime. We'll be back to the second half. We've got John Lapoteur and uh, enjoying it from IAQ Solutions in Orlando, Florida. Outstanding. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site, your trusted full-service disaster recovery and property restoration company at First on site.com Our association sponsors are ACGIH advancing careers of professionals in environmental health industrial hygiene and safety interested in defining their science acgih.org aiha healthy workplaces a healthier world aiha.org the iicrc a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry iicrc.org industry sponsors are aeml laboratories Free shipping, great pricing, same-day results with no-rush fee, AEMLinc.com. Particles Plus, feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us, ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations, TSI.com. Tramex Meters. Developing modern, dynamic moisture meters and humidity monitoring systems since 1974. TramexMeters.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers. HealthyIndoors.com. All right, we're back with John Lapote. John, before the break, you mentioned that, you know, when I talked about why is it mold, 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 and you mentioned uh, two things, and one was insurance coverage because mold can't, to some degree, be covered by insurance. I'm wondering, can you give our audience an update on how the insurance industry, at least in your area and other areas, I mean, I know you talk to people all over the country. How is coverage going with respect to mold remediation? Is that changing again for a while? You know, it was was covered, and then it was not covered, and then it was capped at certain levels.
0: And uh, what are you seeing now? Well, it's it's capped in the state of Florida, and in some cases, it's not covered at all. Uh, it's probably it it it's one of the most abused aspects of of homeowners insurance uh, in our state. Uh, roofing and Category Three water is running a close second, but mold clearly um, was was heavily abused to the point that the state came up with licensing separation between assessment and, and uh, remediation, then caps, and then carriers started leaving the state. So it's obvious, obviously heavily abused in the state of Florida.
1: And one of the reasons we ask is that a lot of times what happens in Florida or in California kind of migrates around the country. So it's interesting to see that the Florida... Legislature and governor recently passed a law that changed some of the insurance um, and how insurance handles, you know, uh, water damage claims and and uh, mold remediation type claims. I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that situation. What what happened? Why did they have to pass this other this new law that kind of limits things as far as, I, I don't know if the AOB, remember, assignment of benefits, if that was gotten rid of or not. But if you could tell our audience a little bit about it, I'd appreciate
0: it. Well, if, if you're not abusing the system, it's not going to affect you in any way. Um, the AOB was abused hugely in the state of Florida. And I know there are a lot of people out there, a lot of restorers that say they depend on the AOB. Uh, to make sure that they get paid. I- I'm I'm okay with that. The way that it was abused here is people were signing an AOB. The homeowner had no idea what was being charged, the amount that was being charged or the work that was being done. So they changed that now. Um, now the homeowner has to be in the loop. So they have to know what's going on. Um, and it's, it's a more of a full disclosure uh, situation with the insurance companies now. Uh, it really hasn't changed much because people are finding, you know, end runs around AOB. I've never used an AOB. Um, we have some pretty high ticket assessments for large losses after uh, storms, but nothing like the restoration contractors um, have to carry. So I understand the need for it, but but I haven't had a need for it. And if you find yourself in a situation where an industry has to make a change, Um, then that change is going to happen because something was being abused to the point that they had to waste time and energy to, to stop the abuse. So it's unfortunate, but we found ourselves in that situation, but there's, there should have always been full disclosure with the, 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 the property owner from the beginning.
1: And so am I right? They're not allowing that assignment of benefits anymore.
0: No, they can still use it. It's it's had a lot of changes to it, Um, but you can still use the assignment of benefits.
1: Okay. Okay. I just wasn't sure exactly what, you know, what changes they had, had made down there. Now I'm, The other thing I, I question is, if you're going to have a new assessment standard, you know, from the IICRC that works with the S520, who's going to pay for all this? For... Well, trend. you're adding in an assessment now where oh, a lot of things right. in the past there might not have been an assessment. Somebody's got to pay for that, whether it comes out of the 10 grand or five grand that maybe they get from insurance, maybe, or it comes out of the owner's pocket. Somebody's got to pay for
0: that. Right. So, in the, in the state of Florida and, and a few other states, that's already mandated by the state. The state has already dictated that it's going to come out of either the, the property owner or the insurance. So in the rest of the states um, they're going to have to to cover it somehow the the property
1: owner okay. now, I,
0: I'll tell you this when we work for the property owner and we always work for the property owner, w- we will tell them that we're working for them to determine why the mold is there, how to prevent the mold from coming back, and exactly what needs to be removed because it's been affected by the mold. And that really controls the loss. And that's why the insurance companies pay us. And that's why the remediation companies don't like using us. (laughs) (laughs) They don't want to be dictated. I've actually had one tell tell me that he doesn't want me to assess anything he's uh, working on because he doesn't want me to tell him what to do. Well, that's the entire intent of the state licensing law, is for somebody to tell him what to do because he can't be trusted. I didn't create that environment. <laughs> they created the environment. The industry created that environment. So now we're writing standards where we didn't have to have one before. We're trying to keep it very specific, cause an origin, extent of the damage, use a floor plan, don't be ambiguous. So it's it's really, it's not rocket surgery. It's really not that complicated. Removing mold and, and uh, assessing mold is not the most difficult thing that I'll do any day of my life. Uh, but it can be because the marketing department for the mold world would rather overcomplicate the process because they want to sell it for more than what it's worth. We use soap and water and minimal containment. We remove it and throw it away.
1: Well, I think it's interesting what's going on in the industry. I wasn't even aware. That's why I brought you on. I wasn't even aware that IICRC was working on this standard They're also working, I know that Cliff's right now, out in Las Vegas at meetings with the IICRC because they've got a wildfire standard in addition to a fire standard, which, you know, we've had standards, well, guidance for for years on how to restore a home after a fire, and now they're trying to separate out wildfire from fire, which kind of, I'm not sure that makes sense to me, but you know, it is what it is. We like to keep people up on what's going on in the industry. Um, another thing we like to keep people, people up on is we did a few shows on the hurricane response after uh you guys have got hit with a couple hurricanes down there this year. What uh what are things like right now? How how is that coming along? Um it I haven't heard a lot of complaints or, or seen a lot of articles about, you know, bad things going on. I'm sure they're happening, but um, can you give us your man on the ground kind of idea of what's going on with hurricane recovery?
0: Yeah, I would say the majority of all of the large losses were put together uh, by the first of the year. So, you know, we're we're pretty good at assessing and and repairing storm damage. The the biggest concern from the carriers is after each hurricane, the amount of Category 3 contaminated building material removal goes up. And a lot of that is not going to be covered. Stormwater from a hurricane is not Category 3. It can be, but it's not by default. It's up to the restorer or an IEP to establish that it's contaminated, grossly contaminated, and that it can't be restored and needs to be removed. But if you gut places, then you're going to have a property owner that's going to have an insurance adjuster show up and not cover a lot of that loss. So we are seeing a lot of that. After every hurricane, we see more of it. So Category 3, removal and not restoration, um is is probably the biggest problem.
1: With respect to hurricane recovery. And how are I mean are, I know that Pete and his group had a conference down in that area that really got hit down towards Fort Myers, Naples. How's recovery
0: coming along? It's it's going very well. I was at that conference. Uh my son uh he spent a couple of months in a, a RV in South Florida. Um, working for a couple of restoration contractors. Um, he's, he's back now, but they're doing pretty well. It, it was devastating for some areas in uh, Southwest Florida. Very devastating. Um, life changing for sure. Um, it also changed the beaches on the east side of the state. So it, it was, it was a devastating storm, but the, the recovery is coming along very well. We were under power in a very, very short period of time. It was amazing how well they prepared and recovered and had us back in power and water and even in the worst hit areas. Um, I don't know if people
1: all realize that also – That storm went up through your area, Orlando, and caused a lot of water damage. Are you guys seeing a lot of mold cases as a result of that?
0: Not really, no. Um, The water rose like we've never seen it before. I mean, I had four feet of water in my backyard. I'm about three-quarters of a mile away from the St. John's River, and uh, it just about got to the house, blew out our well and our septic system, Um, And there were properties that were underwater for an extended period of time, but not a lot of mold cases. In central Florida, we are pretty much so well beyond any of the hurricane damage, even those that were underwater. They were underwater for a couple of months.
1: You know, I'm I'm looking through these texts again, and I, I see one that I want you to comment on. And that is, um, there's been a big push, and I get this all the time. I get people that are trying to work with sensitized people that go to MDs, and they get these urine mycotoxin tests, and they have high mycotoxins in their urine, and they get people into treat and test, and they're trying to figure out how to denature mycotoxins and all this stuff that uh, – Personally, I'm a little suspect about but, you know, uh, I'm wondering, are you going to address that topic, mycotoxins and removal of mycotoxins in this or or identification of mycotoxins in this mold inspection standard?
0: No, absolutely not. Um, We personally deal with a lot of people that have had their urine analyzed and uh, they have probably collected, in many cases, their own ERMI, And, uh, you know, they end up with a few nanograms of something in their house and they want to pay thousands and thousands of dollars to have it removed. Well, 100 percent of the time in the cases that I'm dealing with with sensitized people who think they have a mold contaminated house, what they have is an accumulation of a few nanograms and no matter how much money they spend on cleaning their house, Tomorrow, when the remediator leaves and they open the front door, those few nanograms will return. So you have to be careful with the craziness. Most of the people that have mycotoxins in their system, with the physicians that we work with, it's there because of food ingestion, not because of environmental exposure. We live in a very clean and healthy environment. We're not surrounded by moldy homes. All of my clients, with very few exceptions, In the last 23, 24 years, all of them have had the means necessary to identify and correct the problem. It's very, very few. My renters have the ability to move or make a correction, but those that can't, those are the ones that are going to be highly sensitized. But the people that are going to the MD, these are middle-class America. They own their home. They clean and maintain their own home, but yet they're being convinced that because they've found a few nanograms of a mycotoxin in their house, that their house is contaminated. I I personally think it's ridiculous. Get a true mold assessment. Find out if you're producing mold in your house or if it's being accumulated. If it's being accumulated, come up with ways to keep your house cleaner, but also address the fact that it might quite possibly be the food that you're eating and not the minute amount of mold or mycotoxin you found in your house.
1: John, I've got to go. Let's go to the roundup, John. All right. We're going to wrap this up here, John. But I I really thought, you know, we talked the other day to kind of touch base before we did this show. And one of the things that we talked about was you do a lot of uh, spray foam Um spray foam inspection and uh spray foam expert witness work. And I wanted to you mentioned to me something you've been seeing a lot of and I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about spray foam and then I'll get back to these questions that are coming in um on the chat.
0: Okay. Um so we do a lot of a lot of assessing of spray foam and a lot of our referrals for spray foam come directly from the spray polyurethane foam alliance their industry association. Um, they have a consultants committee. Uh, I I'm a part of that committee. Um, people that have problems with spray foam can hire one of two different people. The, the guy that's going to show up and collect a lot of samples, chemical samples. Um, sometimes they do it for straight VOCs. Sometimes they're doing it for isocyanates. Um, it could be anything. But the, the real question is, are you going to spend all of that money trying to determine whether or not there's a chemical signature of uh, misapplied foam or if you're going to hire somebody to look at the foam and see if it was in, installed correctly? A lot of my clients have already spent a lot of money on the VOCs and the chemicals just to find out that there's no smoking gun. It, it won't tell you anything. But when we get there, we'll cut out a large section of foam. Um, in some cases, two dozen areas and look at the cross-section of the foam. And the Spray Polyurethane Foam Alliance has the guidelines for inspecting foam. And it will tell you, look at the cell structure, the knit line adhesion, adhesion between the uh, sheathing and the foam, the thickness of the foam, the amount of the passes. So we actually physically inspect the foam. We render an opinion on whether or not the foam was installed correctly. And then we look at the rest of the house what is the condition of the attic that you're now sealed in with? Does it still have the remaining insulation that should have been removed? Is it filled with an, you know 50 years of accumulated debris and rodent poo? Is the condition space of the attic, is it being conditioned? Because the code has changed now in most states to require circulating air through the attic. That was the number one reason that there was occupant complaint or mold growing on foam is because nobody circulated air through the attic. So now the code has caught up. If you're familiar with the code for crawl spaces, if you encapsulate a crawl space, you have to own it. You have to circulate air through it. You have to control the humidity. Uh, In the crawl space, you have to have a sump pump. Well, the code was lobbied to have the same requirements for an encapsulated attic. Seal it, control the humidity, and circulate air through it. So now there's a 50 CFM per 1,000 square feet requirement of moving air through it. All states have the ability to adopt it. Florida adopted all of the code of improvements with the exception of circulating air in the attic. Doesn't oh. matter. In order to fix it, you have to circulate air in the attic. Some addicts are a good candidate for, for spray foam. Some are not. When it comes to the occupant who's complaining that they're sick from the foam, most of the time, it's because they've been sensitized to the foam. It's very, very unfortunate. There are spray foam contractors that will spray the foam in the house with the homeowners in it. Uh, those people, they should just be incarcerated because you could make somebody sick for the rest of their life. They're not going to live back in the house. So if you've been exposed to the foam when it was being applied, You can't unring that bell. And and it doesn't make everybody sensitized. I may walk in there. I might walk in there with you and you become sensitized and I'm fine. We don't know what makes people sensitized. It's not an age issue. It's not a gender issue. It's an individual issue. But you can also be sensitized if they don't ventilate properly. So each manufacturer has a ventilation rate to establish reoccupancy. So they spray the foam, they sample the air, they know that they've got a presence of these chemicals and it needs to be exhaust ventilated until they're gone. And there's a rate for that. Different manufacturers will have an exaggerated and increased uh, ventilation rate for a quicker reoccupancy time. But the key is all of them have a, a ventilation rate for reoccupancy. So when we interview the clients on the phone and they tell me that they never saw a fan, and they, there never was a fan on the job until two weeks later when they said the, the odor will go away. Well, the VOCs from the application of foam, when not exhaust ventilated, fill and permeate the entire house, and they get absorbed by the drywall and the furniture, and that odor lingers. Um, it's very difficult to get rid of it, but a, a bakeout works very well. Hydroxyls help. But exhaust ventilation is critical because if somebody comes into their house and it wasn't exhaust ventilated, then they could become sensitized. If they sleep in their house the next day, if if they wait 24 hours and go in there, but it was still filled with VOCs, you can still become sensitized. So the spray foam industry, when you're assessing the foam, you need to find out how it was ventilated. You need to find out the condition of the attic. You need to find out if they improve the HVAC to circulate air in the attic. Then you need to find out if they're bringing in outdoor air to meet the minimum ventilation rate because they sealed themselves in. And then you have to determine the installed condition of the spray foam. So that's a lot. And that's a lot more than most people want to do when they're inspecting occupant complaint for odors associated with spray foam. They just want to know if there's an elevation of chemicals.
1: I've got another good chat question here um what's the current pulse on spray foam particulates dust in attic and hvac containing fire retardants um our audience sees this being a remediation effort versus general vacuuming what are your thoughts on that i'm not sure i understand the question well i i let me let me rephrase it for them um there are particulates that come from these products, okay, and they end up in the in the environment on the floor of the attic or whatever the case may be. I would imagine most companies just vacuum up up with, um, you know, a shop vac.
0: Um, right. Do you recommend something else? No. Uh, one of the problems that you have with attic installed air handlers is that they don't do a lockout tag out and protect the air handler. So we see a lot of times that the air handler is running and it sucks this crap up. So now, now you're looking at a much larger problem. Correctly installed uh, spray foam doesn't have a whole lot of dust. Um, it's going to cure very well. It's going to react without a lot of that little dust everywhere. So it's usually slightly off ratio. If you put your hand anywhere in the attic and you pick it up and it's full of sticky stuff, that's not good foam. That's That's not correctly installed. Um, but we don't have a lot of problems with the dust uh, unless somebody's not doing their job correctly.
1: And one more. How long do you see isocyanates lasting in the air that EMSL uh, suggested rarely detected after a few
0: days? Um, probably you have seen easily hundreds of sampling after uh, spray foam was installed, and not once have we ever captured it. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, John, it, it goes away fast.
1: Always uh, always great to talk to you. I had one other thing I wanted to ask you about. Oh, um, with respect to tight homes, you've mentioned that a few times. Looks like you're running into more problems with respect to tight homes because code now requires homes to be tighter and tighter. Um, and also, I would imagine, not only does that – increased CO2 and other things, but um, humidity as well? Are you still specifying whole house dehumidifiers? Um, and and I guess, uh, what other types of issues do you see with tightness?
0: So the, the biggest problem that we have with occupant complaint in a home today, and it doesn't matter the age of the home, everybody's weatherizing the hell out of their house. Everybody's using the highest seer air handlers they can get. So now you have a house that's producing what we refer to as just daily use of VOCs, uh, perfume, deodorant, cooking, cleaning. Everything's going to produce some level of VOC. Well, it's not going anywhere anymore. In a spray foam house, everything stays within the envelope. Everything is there, um, and you're just recirculating it. So the air handler, high sear, runs less to save the energy dollars. So it's removing less humidity. So now we've got humidity problems. So people have humidity blooms, xerophilic mold growth from high humidity, but people are not feeling well. If they don't have a, a, a humidity bloom, they just cause us because they're just not feeling well when they're at home. So, well, you're, you're in a 2000 square foot house on a, a family of four, maybe six and a dog and uh, your carbon dioxide is above 2000. You know, you got to crack a window. (laughs) Yeah. In Florida, you can't crack a window. So we specify to bring in outdoor air through a dehumidifier. The dehumidifiers that we spec have a MERV 13 filter. So we're cleaning the outdoor air. Then we're drying the outdoor air. Then we're introducing it to the return. And it's going through another filter. And now it's mixing with the indoor air and going to all of the different rooms in the house. So we'll typically tell our clients that we're going to improve their filtration to a four inch filter. It's a filter back return. We just shove it further in the wall. If it's under the air handler, we just lift the air handler, put a new filter rack in. So now you've got a MERV 12 under the air handler, a MERV 13 coming in from the outside. We're circulating the air more, putting the house under a positive pressure, drying it, and we're reducing the VOCs, carbon dioxide, and formaldehyde in the house and the airborne particulate. So it works all the way around, providing that you've completed your thorough inspection of the inside and the outside of the house, and we're not producing any bad things. No rodents, no roaches, no water intrusion, no leaks, no shower and plumbing leaks. If the house is in good shape, if not, we give them a list of everything that they need to do to keep the bad things from happening. So now you're dealing with accumulation versus production an accumulation can be corrected with filtration and ventilation air.
1: Excellent John. John, thanks so much. Always appreciate joining you and getting the uh latest from the field and uh oh. you know, getting your also you also work with a lot with the associations. We appreciate that. Um any final thoughts before we go?
0: No, use a particle counter, measure carbon <laughs> dioxide. Measure. Try not to do a mold inspection alone. Check the whole
1: house, (laughs) filtrate, and uh, keep it clean, huh? I I know you brought that up several times, and I really like that emphasis on, you know, housekeeping's a big thing, and uh, people have to realize that um, they have a big responsibility in taking care of their own indoor air quality as well. So, thank you, John Lapater. I appreciate you joining us, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Also, want to thank uh, John. You got to have faith that the controls are fantastic. Sponsors are. Loyal audience members, I'm working on I'm trying to get a show next week for uh, on East Palestine because East Palestine, Ohio, has had some major issues after that train derailment. Um, it's led to indoor air quality issues for people, of course, water-related issues. I'm working on that. We've also had another industry pioneer, unfortunately, pass just recently here, Hal Levin. So we're either going to replay house shows next week and spruce them up. They're from a few years ago, uh, or we're going to get this East Palestine thing done in the next couple of weeks. But we'll be back next Friday with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus.
0: For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel, saying thanks for listening.